Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome, Isham Nation, to the Process This podcast. Well, we've done it. We've hit the double digits. This is episode number 10. Today, we'll start off the show with what's on my mind, where I'm going to discuss the hot topic of coronavirus. What is it and why is it important to sterile processing folks? Following that, we have Mailbox Mania back in the lineup, reviewing some interesting articles in the Agic Journal, and then our guest speaker, Joe Wood. Joe will be sharing some of her insights during the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing that sadly killed three people and injured several hundreds. It's a great show, lots of good information, so let's get started with what's on my mind. This week in What's On My Mind, we're discussing the hot topic, coronavirus. Let's first start by answering a few questions about coronavirus. So what is coronavirus? Coronaviruses are a large family of viruses which may cause illness in humans and animals. In humans, several coronaviruses are known to cause respiratory infections ranging from the common cold to more severe disease such as the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, and Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, commonly known as SARS. Now, the most recently discovered coronavirus, uh, corona disease, is COVID, C-O-V-I-D-19, COVID-19. Now, this COVID-19, this new virus and disease, was previously unknown before our current outbreak we're seeing. For this segment, anytime I refer to coronavirus, I'm really talking about COVID-19. Coronavirus is a more popular term, and it's used by the media, and that's what everyone knows it as. So what are the symptoms of the coronavirus? The most common symptoms are fever, tiredness, and dry cough. Some patients have aches, pains, nasal congestion, runny nose, sore throat, diarrhea, kind of all the same things of a common cold or the flu. Right? These symptoms usually are mild and begin gradually. Some people become infected but don't develop any symptoms at all, and they don't feel unwell. But most people, about 80%, recover from the disease without needing any spatial treatment. Most people, about 80%, recover from the disease without needing special treatment. One out of six people who get coronavirus become seriously ill and develop breathing difficulties. Older folks and those with underlying medical problems like high blood pressure, heart problems, or diabetes are more likely to develop serious illness. And about 2% of these people with the disease have died. People with fever, cough, and difficulty breathing should seek medical attention. So how is coronavirus transmitted? Well, what we know about the spreading of the virus is largely based on what is known about the similar viruses or that family of viruses we talked about. So this virus is spread mainly from person to person, between people who are in close contact with one another, uh, via respiratory droplets produced when an infected person sneezes or coughs. These droplets can land in the mouth, nose, of people who are nearby, possibly inhaled into the lungs. Can coronavirus transmit 
uh, from contact with infected surfaces or objects. Now, it, it may be possible that a person can get coronavirus by touching a surface or an object that has the virus on it and then touching their nose, mouth, or even their eyes. But it's not thought to be the main uh, transmission route for this virus. When does transmission happen? People are thought to be most contagious when they are the most symptomatic, meaning when they're at their sickest. Some spread might be possible before people show symptoms. Uh, there have been some reports of this new coronavirus uh, spreading before they're showing signs of symptoms, but this is not thought to be the main route or the main way this virus is transmitted. What can I do to protect myself and prevent the spread of disease? So protective measures for everyone. Stay aware of the latest information on coronavirus outbreak. You know, this information is available on the WHO website, the World Health Organization, and the CDC website. Most people who become infected experience mild illness and recover, but it can be more severe for others. Take care of your health and protect others by doing the following. Regularly and thoroughly clean your hands with an alcohol-based hand rub or wash them with soap and water. So why? Washing your hands with soap and water or using that alcohol-based hand rub kills the virus that may be on your hands. It's a good idea to maintain at least three feet distance between yourself and anyone who is coughing or sneezing. Why? When people uh, cough and sneeze, they spray small liquid droplets from their nose and mouth, which may contain a virus. If you're too close, you can breathe in the droplets, including the coronavirus, if someone uh, coughing has the disease. Avoid touching eyes, nose, and mouth. And this is because hands touch many surfaces and can pick up the virus. Once contaminated, hands transfer the virus to your eyes, nose, or mouth. From there, the virus can enter your body and make you sick. Make sure you and the people around you are following good respiratory hygiene. This means cover your mouth and nose with your bent elbow or a tissue when you're coughing or sneezing. Then dispose of that tissue immediately. By following good respiratory hygiene, you protect the people around you from the virus, such as cold, flu, and the coronavirus. Stay at home if you're feeling unwell. If you're not feeling good, stay home, folks. If you have a fever, cough, or difficulty breathing, seek medical attention and call in advance, following the directions of your local health authority. Why? Because national and local authorities will have the most up-to-date information on the situation in your area. Calling in advance will allow your health care provider to quickly direct you to the right health care facility. This will also protect you and help prevent the spread of virus and other infections. So is there a vaccine or drug or treatment for coronavirus? Not yet. To date, there is no vaccine and no specific antiviral medication to prevent or treat coronavirus. However, those affected should receive care to relieve symptoms. So again, it's symptomatic. People with serious illness should be hospitalized. Most patients recover thanks to that supportive care in those facilities. Now here's an important one. Should I wear a mask to protect myself? People with no respiratory symptoms, such as a cough, do not need to wear a medical mask. The WHO, the World Health Organization, recommends the use of masks for people who have symptoms of coronavirus and for those caring for individuals who have symptoms, such as the cough and the fever. The use of masks is critical for healthcare workers and people who are taking care of someone either at home or in the healthcare facility. 
So the WHO advises uh, be rational with the use of medical masks. Avoid unnecessary wastage of these precious resources and misuse of the mask. And so for more information, go to that WHO website and it, there's a section called advice on the use of mask. So use a mask only if you have a respiratory symptom, again, coughing or sneezing, have suspected coronavirus infection with mild symptoms, or are caring for someone with coronavirus infection. So just some basics uh, about coronavirus for you to think about. But now, why should sterile processing folks be concerned about the coronavirus? I like to think of the coronavirus on the same lines as I think about disasters. For instance, in sterile processing, what steps would you take if your critical water system supply were shut down or disabled? What steps would you take if there was a school bus accident outside your facility with multiple injuries? Are you prepared for the unexpected? What things are you prepared for? Admittedly, it's not possible to prepare for every scenario. But fortunately, in the case of coronavirus, we know ahead of time that there is a strong possibility that it will continue to spread. The numbers rise every day, and every day countries are reporting new cases. So here's an opportunity for stale processing to be ahead of the game, to start thinking about it, to start having conversations and preparing for a coronavirus before it hits the states. Now, personal protective equipment is a real concern with this new virus. Currently, there is an international shortage of protective masks. So what would happen if the virus starts spreading rapidly in the states, coupled with a mask shortage and potentially a protective gown shortage? Does your facility have a plan for PPE in these types of shortages? What would you do in the decontamination room if you could not get the PPE you normally use? So quick story. The other day I was watching a TV show about the HMS Queen Elizabeth, which is a new, highly sophisticated aircraft carrier in the Royal Navy. Now the ship was on its maiden voyage, and once it hit open waters, the aircraft carrier was joined by another ship. And together, they were both going out to sea. Well, a problem arose when the aircraft carrier tried to radio or communicate with the accompanying ship. So it seemed that the communications were down. The brand new advanced ship, as sophisticated as it was, was unable to communicate with the other ship. The aircraft carrier had to revert to an old practice of using signal flags and signal lamps for optical communication. They interviewed the captain afterwards and asked if he was disappointed with the failure of communication on the new ship. His response was no. He said it's times like these when we get to practice using our backup systems, even systems that are antiquated and decades old. So on board a ship, they practice and anticipate failures. So in real life situations, they're always prepared. So what would you do if you had that shortage of PPE? So let's start with the mask. Since there's currently an international shortage of masks, what would you do if you had to ration your mask usage throughout your facility? So the CDC does have some information on extending the life of a mask in combination with an extended face shield that may be a temporary solution. You know, you can also use reusable options such as PAPRs. PAPRs are reusable respirators that are typically loose-fitting hoods or helmets or elastomeric respirators that have reusable face pieces 
and disposable filters are some other options. So does your facility have these options? And are others available? Think about what does the education and training look like and how often do you train? Now I've always had the luxury of using disposable gowns and gloves. But what if you had to use reusable gowns and gloves in the decontamination area? Do you have access to these items? Are you prepared? What would be your process for decontamination of these reusable items? Is there a process in place at your facility? And what about education and training? So some other things you should think about. Um, one is partner with your sterile processing leadership and your infection preventionist and really start those conversations about coronavirus. If you don't have a plan currently, you need to start one, right? Start thinking ahead, form a group in sterile processing and talk about what the reusable options are for PPE. Get the input of the entire group. Remember to always protect yourself because you are the priority. Without you, the work doesn't get done. So remember, protect yourself. If you have concerns, speak up, ask questions, don't be silent. Stay up to date with coronavirus by visiting the CDC or the WHO websites regularly because things are changing all the time, especially when we learn more and more about this new virus. So start thinking about coronavirus. Make a plan. Don't be reactive. We know it's coming. Be prepared so we don't have these freak out moments. So that's going to do it for this segment of What's On My Mind. Today in Mailbox Mania, we're looking at two articles in the March 2020, Volume 48, Issue Number 3, American Journal of Infection Control. The first article is Effectiveness of Manual versus Automated Cleaning on Staphylococcus Epidermidis Biofilm Removal of Surface of Surgical Instruments. Now, the highlights for this article bacterial adhesions forming multi layers on surgical forceps can occur with one hour. Automated cleaning removes bile load better than manual cleaning. Microbial loads recovered from jaws and ratchets were higher compared to the shanks. Structural damage on forceps may act as sites for microbial adhesion and shelter. Now some background for this article. Biofilm removal is a challenge during surgical instrument processing. We analyzed the time required for staphylococcal epidermidis to form biofilms on surgical instruments and how cleaning methods remove them. Now the methods they use for this article, different areas, ratchet, shanks, and jaws of straight cryo forceps were contaminated by soaking in a broth containing 10 to the 6th colony forming units of staphylococcal epidermidis for one, two, four, six, eight, and 12 hours. So the adhesion and removal after manual or automated ultrasonic cleaning was evaluated by a microbiological culture and scanning electron microscope. The results, microbial load increased with time. So from 10 to the one to 10 to the two after one hour, and then 10 to the four after 12 hours. Exopolysaccharides were detected after two hours and gradually increased thereafter. Bacterial load was reduced by one to two logs after manual cleaning 
and one to three log after automated cleaning, but biofilms were not completely eliminated. In general, bacterial load was lower in the shank fragments. This difference was significant at six hours. So the conclusions for this article, rapid adhesions of staphylococcal epidermidis and the exopolysaccharide formation was observed on surgical instruments. Automated cleaning was more effective than manual cleaning, but neither method removed biofilms completely. The pre-cleaning conditions and the forceps design are critical factors in processing quality. So great article. Uh, I recommend that you read the full publication uh, for this article. Again, it's a good read. The next article we're going to read is Challenges in Achieving Effective High-Level Disinfection in Endoscope Reprocessing. So some highlights. Fully reprocessed flexible endoscopes frequently harbor viable microbes. High-level disinfection commonly fail minimum effective concentration tests. Instructions for use and testing high-level disinfections are complex. Human factors contribute to widespread not adherence with guidelines. And last, new approaches are needed for manufacturers and infection preventionists. So the abstract for this article, endoscope reprocessing is often ineffective and microbes frequently remain on an endoscope after the use of high-level disinfectants, HLD. Several factors impact reprocessing effectiveness, including non-adherence to guidelines, use of damaged endoscopes, use of insoluble products during endoscopy, insufficient cleaning, contaminated rinse water, and inadequate drying before storage. Our team suspected that issues with HLD chemistries and monitoring could also contribute to reprocessing failures. So this article, they conducted a mixed method analysis of published literature and the reviews of frontline personnel and evidence from previous studies. The evidence showed that reusable HLDs commonly fail tests for minimum effective concentrations, those MECs, before their maximum usage period. MEC tests also detect failures associated with single-use HLD that did not fully deploy. These failures were due to product issues, process complexities, and personnel non-adherence with guidelines and manufacturer's instructions. High-level disinfectants will likely continue to be used for the foreseeable future. More research is needed to assess real-world practice patterns related to high-level disinfection step and MEC testing and establish more realistic usage period for reusable high-level disinfectant chemistries. Manufacturers and researchers should evaluate the ability of technological solutions and engineered safeguards to overcome human error. They should recognize the need for quality improvement is growing and infection preventionists should take action to build on this momentum and collaborate with manufacturers, endoscope physicians, and reprocessing personnel to improve the effectiveness of high-level disinfection. Again, this is just another article that has more evidence to support the need for greater attention and focus with endoscopy reprocessing. So this comes from the AJIC Journal uh, March issue. I suggest that you go read this. It's a great article. And that's going to do it for this segment of Mailbox Mania. Tune in next time for more articles that affect your sterile processing world. Today our guest speaker is Joe Wood. 
Joe is currently the sterile processing compliance manager at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. She entered the sterile processing industry over nine years ago and has focused her energies on a key principle, we can do this better. Committed to moving the profession forward outside of her organization, Joe is currently the vice president and government affairs liaison for the Massachusetts chapter for central service professionals and a chapter representative for ISHM. Her passions lie in disaster management and preparedness and holds several FEMA certifications. Well, thank you, Joe, for joining us today and joining the ISHM Nation podcast. I understand that your facility is a level one trauma center. Can you tell us a little bit about being a CS uh, person in a level one trauma center? Sure. Both uh, my current facility and my previous facility, um, I have had the pleasure of working at level one trauma centers for my entire career. And really what that ends up meaning is at any second, we could have pretty much anything come through the door from uh, someone who was shot or stabbed, a really bad car accident. We also have people that get that flighted to our facilities. And what that means for my department is that any given second, we need to be able to pull case carts for surgery within minutes. The first few times it happens, it can be a little stressful because you realize, you know, patients are waiting and, you know, every second counts. And you you really start to get into the flow of it. And once you're really used to it, it's more of a collaboration between you and the OR because no two cases are ever the same. It's not like doing a lap coli. You know, the, the preference sure. cards never have exactly what you need. So you get used to it pretty quickly. So your facility responded to the Boston Marathon bombings in 2013. Can you tell us a little bit how that day unfolded for you and your staff? And really, how are you notified? Sure. So at that time, I was working the day shift at Boston Medical Center, which is also a level one trauma center. And it's a, a normal Monday for us. We have a full caseload. Um, Mondays for us were typically ortho heavy. That's just kind of how our case mix falls. The only thing that's different on Marathon Monday for hospitals like mine in Boston is we tend to have the incident command center open and staffed. And it's not because we're thinking a mass casualty situation is going to happen. We just know that a whole lot of people, depending on the weather, will either be hypothermic or they'll be dehydrated or they've really just overexerted themselves. So we're, we're really expecting a huge influx of people through our ED who like need fluids or need to get warmed up. So that's kind of a, a typical marathon Monday. Um, but on this day, it was a little different. And the bombs um, were both exploded just before our day shift ended and our evening shift was coming on, um, which when, when you talk about timing is everything, that was truly timing was everything. What ended up happening is our hospital had a disaster response system and they would call a code and they would do that over the phone system so the other patients in the hospital wouldn't hear it like over a loudspeaker and, and get worried. Sure. So I ans I was actually the person that answered the phone in our department and it said, this is a phase B disaster. Please stand by. There's patients incoming. There was a manhole cover explosion at Copley train station. And I listen and then it says, you know, if you wanna if you wanna hear this message again, press star. I pressed star about five or six times because I wasn't hearing anything that said this is a drill. 
It was different, but at the same time, it really wasn't clicking. I hung up the phone, I ran down, and I found the um, interim manager because our manager was on maternity leave at that time. So our day shift supervisor was acting manager, and I said, you know, I just got this really weird phone call. They were saying there was some sort of explosion at the train station that, like, patients might be coming. So we do what everybody does. We turn on the internet, and we look, and we very quickly realized that it was not a manhole cover explosion, and something had happened at the finish line. Um, So she told me, go into the locker room and tell all the day shift employees to put their scrubs back on because this this does not look good. Um, a few minutes later, they sent out another phone call saying that it had been upgraded to a phase C disaster, which meant we now can't leave. Once you hit phase C, that means that the hospital resources are going to be maxed out and all staff need to stay. So we all stayed and... Um, Within the next hour or so, they actually upgraded it to a phase D disaster across the entire city. And that was because our the city's resources, not just our hospitals, were all going to be really strained and put to a max. How did your staff react when they found out what was really going on? So no one really knew what happened, um, I think, until we all got home that night and turned on the news. Because during... During kind of our initial response in, in SPD and in the ORs, we just knew that we were getting patients in and they were hurt really badly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had seven amputations, seven traumatic amputations that had come in. Two of the patients were bilateral um, and had lost both legs. And what we were seeing in our ORs as we were responding were things that you see in war zones. And that was something that was really hard for people to process. But at the same time, we've seen all kinds of bad things. Mm -hmm. Being at a level one trauma center, we see car accidents, you know, we've seen people that their legs have been amputated because they've been hit by a bus. In some ways, it was almost business as usual, only instead of having one of our rooms full with a patient like that, all of our rooms were full. Um, We ended up with 17 critical patients coming from the finish line. So trying to manage our resources, I think, was the hardest part for our team. But thankfully, we had double staff because, like I mentioned, it happened at shift change. So we had our entire day shift and we had our entire evening shift. So all we were doing was just trying to get all of our orthopedic kits that we had used all day, sterile, and back up to the OR. And that was our main focus. We had no music going. Everybody was just head down cranking out as many kits as we could with the same high quality that we would do any other day. How long did your department function at this level? So it really took us through almost the end of the second shift. In that facility, we had three sets of OR suites. And the Menino Pavilion is where all of the trauma would go. And then we also had the Moakley Pavilion, which was Ambulatory Surgery Center, and which is physically connected to Menino. And then we also had the East Newton campus, which would do long complex like cancer cases and things like that. So we had eight rooms in Menino that were running and we didn't know this until we happened to go up to grab a few kits from Oakley to help respond. They had started diverting a few of the patients into our ambulatory surge center too. That was something that we kind of had to pivot quickly on to be able to respond to, but overall it was okay. But it did take about eight hours to get 
the first initial rush through. Um, so day shift work, worked a double. Evening shift ended up working a double as well, just so we could get all of our trays back up and sterile. Um, and then night shift was able to work kind of a, a normal shift. And that's because for the entire week, the, the next four days after, all of our elected cases had been canceled. Um, and we were only doing revisions and washouts on those same patients. If you had to say that something went well during this response, what would you say really worked well for you and your facility? I would say the teamwork that was shown, not just within our own department and how all of, you know, everybody puts their differences aside, but the teamwork that was happening between us in the operating room. I have a kind of funny story about one particular surgeon who, on any other normal day, he would not talk to us if if anything depended on it, it, it would not happen. You know, he would always go through his nurse in the room or he would go through the charge nurse at the front desk and he literally would not talk. We've been standing side by side many times and he would talk to the person across from me and have that person relay it back to me, even though I was standing right next to him. Um, but during the marathon, I had to bring up a piece of equipment that was an alternative for what he wanted because we had run out and he turned to me and said, thank you the person that not once would ever look me in the eye or say a single word to me. So during moments like that in a true crisis, everybody puts everything to the side to do what we need to do to save everyone's lives. Are there any other things that you learned from this experience that can help somebody else? In my years of experience, I have always been involved in learning the incident command system through FEMA. Um, I used to be a part of the Civil Air Patrol when I was in high school, and I had gotten ICS 100 and 200 both through them in the Vermont Emergency Management Agency. So I had some kind of experience and knowledge with how a command system works. You need something, how to ask for it during that kind of situation. Um, a lot of hospitals use the incident command system, even if you don't know it. Finding that person in your facility about how does the incident command system work? Do we use that here? Is there any way I could get training on it? That's that's a huge part to be able to help. But even just in SPD at the basic level, knowing what's in your trays, knowing how they're used, knowing what alternatives could be for any particular instrument, because then you can be a part of the troubleshooting and the problem solving in a time like that when you're running out of equipment. And what else could you use? How often as a facility did you practice or, or how often were you involved in emergency preparedness, you know, going through the command center and things like that? Never. <laughs> um. <laughs> what about afterwards? Was, was that more of a focus? So after the marathon happened um, and they kind of realized how we are such a vital chain, I mean, every, every single department during a crisis like that is called on whether it's nutrition, security, materials management, sterile processing, every single person has a very critical role to play. And they're all very critical links in the chain. And after the marathon, I think they really realized that there's all these links in the chain that had never been a part of, like the role playing and the training and all of those things. I mean, when we think disaster preparedness, we think let's make sure our ED and our OR know what's going. That's cool. But then, you know, we've got hundreds of extra people in our hospital that need to be able to eat. 
We've got hundreds of patients potentially that are, all are going to need sutures and dressings and all of these things through our materials management folks. We've got people in SPD that need to know the rules about, you know, what is a phase A, B, C, D disaster? What does that mean? How do we help be a member of the, the team in the OR? After that, then our emergency preparedness department reached out and said, I think we should do some drills. I said, I absolutely agree. So, you know, we practice on what would happen if we had a water main break and what would we do with our instruments? And well, you know, about a year later, we had a water main break in the basement. So things like that are really helpful. And if, if you're not already a part of that team and at that table, you can ask and they're, they'll be glad to bring you in. It really sounds like being proactive before the emergency happens is really the key, you know, when you're in an emergency situation, so you know what to do. Absolutely. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time on this area. I know it's going to benefit a lot of people. So kind of the best thing that sounds like folks can do is get involved, you know, be in, get in your hospital incident command team before things happen. So again, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Again, thank you, Joe, for sharing with us today. Isha Nation, Episode 10 is in the books. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code COVID-19. Again, the code for this episode is COVID-19. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. Stay classy, Isham Nation, and we'll see you next time.